0: you're listening to the cyberwire network powered by n2k this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage no matter what stage you're in shopify's there to help you grow Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled.
1: Then came new technologies and new ways to work.
0: And welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Malcolm Nance, who we've had here before for SpyCast, say twice, I believe, in the past, but we like him so much that we asked him back. And there's also the fact that a lot has happened in the world since he was here last, things that he's uniquely suited to talk about. So Malcolm has a massive resume, so I'll just hit some of the highlights and so we can flesh out the details during our conversation. He was a career counterterrorism and intelligence officer for the U.S. government special operations, homeland security, and intelligence agencies with over 33 years of experience in combating radical extremism an honorably retired U.S. Navy Arabic-speaking intelligence collections operator, field interrogator, survival evasion resistance and escape specialist, and founder of the Advanced Terrorism Abduction and Hostage Survival School, he spent more than two decades on clandestine anti-terrorism and counterterrorism intelligence operations in the Middle East, North Africa, the Balkans, South Asia, and sub-Saharan Africa, in direct support of the special operations and intelligence communities. He has authored several books in multiple editions, including the Terrorist Recognition Handbook, a Practitioner's Manual for Predicting and Identifying Terrorist Activity, An End to Al-Qaeda, Destroying Bin Laden's Jihad and Restoring America's Honor, and The Terrorists of Iraq, Inside the Strategy and Tactics of the Iraq Insurgency. And he is now the author of the brand new book, Defeating ISIS, Who They Are, How They Fight, What They Believe. He is also the Executive Director of Tapestry, an acronym standing for the Terror Asymmetrics Project on Strategy, Tactics, and Radical Ideology, a nonprofit, nonpartisan virtual defense research institute dedicated to studying and disseminating open source intelligence on the operational strategies, tactics, and belief systems of radicalized extremist organizations, individuals, and communities throughout the world. And that is the truncated version of Malcolm's biography. So Malcolm, thank you for taking the time <laughs> to join us here. It's always a pleasure to be at the SPA Museum. So I know you don't like being the go-to torture guy, but I think we got to talk about torture. <laughs> Just, there's a lot happened since the last time you're here. You've been here before talking about torture, but since the last time the torture report came out about a year and change ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and before and after it came out, being in the job that I'm in, I was frequently asked about the CIA's rendition and enhanced interrogation program, that wonderful euphemism. And I'll admit, I have very little experience discussing this. I have an academic background. I can do an academic conversation. Mm-hmm. And most of the talking heads on TV are the same. Right. right? There are people that can talk about, oh, this is what the Army field mailman says, or this right. is what we can talk about you know, what is a war crime? But you, however, were an instructor uh, in both wartime and peacetime SEER, and we talked about that acronym, uh, for basically training Navy and Marine Corps pilots, Navy SEALs, and other people high risk of capture soldiers, sailors, Marines to survive captivity. Right. And in doing so, you're integral in the creation of a school dedicated to uh, dealing with abduction and hostage-taking from terrorists. And you've been waterboarded. You very famously said, when asked about waterboarding, waterboarding is torture, period. Right. I assume that hasn't changed. But, of course, the the torture report has come out, and it's been in the middle of this back and forth, somewhat partisan, Republicans versus Democrats, but also there's been a lot of pushback from the Intelligence Committee. So what do you think about the report itself and the debate over its merits?
1: You know, when when I wrote the article, for Small Wars Journal back in 2007, um, uh, little did I know that it would set off a firestorm. Uh, It it really went overboard at that time. And, of course, they were trying to uh, confirm a new attorney general who himself was sort of waffling as to whether or not, you know, enhanced interrogation, specifically waterboarding, was a form of torture. Um, And since I had a lot of experience with that, uh, and, and, and despite what you'll hear from a lot of people, there is only one place, one facility, and one board in the entirety of the United States Department of Defense where waterboarding was authorized and done. One. And if you don't know where it is, then you don't know. It's just that simple. So, you know, it wasn't being done in large, you know, quantities all over the place. Uh, it, there was a very small, trained cadre of people who were, were, who were trained to to implement this. And it wasn't done. You know, you always hear people say, well, if you think waterboarding is torture, then you've tortured U.S. citizens. Well, no. We uh, at the U.S. Navy SEER School in Coronado, um, we used it as a demonstrator. It was a systems demonstrator, we like to say, that it was there to show that the enemy does have the capacity to make you talk. Mm -hmm. Despite everything that we teach you in resistance uh, to interrogation, uh, the Geneva Convention, there are very horrible, horrible methodologies that will make you open your mouth. The difference between what we did, which was an honorable program developed after the Korean War, every service organization created a survival, evasion, resistance, and escape school, uh, in order to keep Americans alive. We had Americans who were just dying, literally dying in the field uh, because they didn't know how to confront being broken spiritually and emotionally by enemy captors. Waterboarding, as it was used at our facility, was designed to demonstrate that that enemy will absolutely make you open your mouth. The question is, what are you going to do when your mouth opens? Right. So we, it was an honorable system. Like I said, we would show, demonstrate to 40 or 50 students who were in a simulated environment, right? Take one person who was recalcitrant or wasn't learning the lessons of SEER, and we would show that there was a way to do it. And we were also testing the student at the most extreme level. But it was not widespread. It was not done to, you know, 50 to 100 students at a time. You know, it was done in one here, one there, as I said, to do that. Now, One thing that we knew is we had the entire history of survival, evasion, resistance, and escape in the United States Armed Forces. From the American Revolution, we had dossiers, books, manuals of captives from in every war. And we studied in great detail how people would inflict pain and use what we call stress and duress techniques on your body. And we were, of course, that repository of information. And we all knew, understood, and had drafted material Based on the entire history, all right, as we say, which was written in blood of dead U.S. service members, what worked, what would not work? Because people would come home. We had the in, in one filing cabinet an entire classified, the original um, paper copy dossiers of everyone who came home from the Vietnam War who was a captain, including John McCain's original debriefing, typed, hand-typed of what happened to him during captivity, what torture techniques were inflicted on them, and what efficacy it had in captivity. So there was an entire world of, of of corporate knowledge in the Department of Defense and in the intelligence communities that said that none of this worked. Right, Stress and duress does not work. And we also knew what did work, right? Coming in with a more affiliatorial style, coming in and discussing, um, you know, bringing out... Uh, the best aspects of your society, and making them affiliate with you, that would actually gain more information. Like Hans Scharf, the, you know, the German interrogator in World War II, never used any stress and duress the way the Gestapo was. And he was eminently successful, and the Gestapo were eminently failing. Right. All right. So that's why, of course, even today, waterboarding is torture. Um, that article was quoted by the president on the day that he signed the enhanced interrogation technique ban uh, of waterboarding at the White House. That was, that was, I believe, one of his last words, was that waterboarding was torture. Now we have ISIS waterboarding captives. We have reports of them. Uh, the uh, former Army Ranger, uh, who was captured before he was beheaded, he was tortured and waterboarded. Uh, so our enemies are using it based on our justification that it works. Right. And we know it doesn't work. You're going to say anything. The point is you're going to have to waste a lot of resources validating anything that comes out of your mouth. Uh, There was a recent BBC documentary that we participated in where the subject of the waterboarding admitted on the waterboard that he was born a bunny rabbit. Right? And he went into convulsions 18 seconds in. And he said when he was brought off the board, he goes, I have no idea what I said, and I would have said anything to make it stop. So why even discuss it?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you brought up John McCain, and there's the famous story of his, uh, his fellow captor in the Hanoi Hilton being asked about his chain of command and, and listing the offensive line for the Green Bay Packers. Right, right. And uh, you hear so many stories about that. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for, for bringing us up to the present. Um, I, I know this is not uh, a topic that uh, is pleasant to talk about, but certainly I mean, there's very few people that know more about it than you do. So we're, right. we appreciate you taking the time. But let's talk about ISIS because that is another major subject that has popped up since the last time you've been here and you really you you spotted the ISIS threat for lack of a better phrase long before other people did. It, you know for a, a lot of people ISIS is the kind of the flavor of the year, the month. Yeah. You know where all of a sudden there are 20, 30 books on ISIS that have been written in like <laughs> a half an hour and thrown up to try to make money or try to get this idea out. You hear ISIS on the news all the time, but this is not an organization that popped up yesterday. Yeah. You've been looking at these guys for 10 years. Can you talk a little bit about your your back, well, under a different name, you've been looking at these guys for for a decade. Can you talk a little bit about that that lead-up?
1: Yeah, they tried to kill me. And I take it very personally. And uh, one of the books that I wrote was a book that I first wrote in 2000, between 2005 and 2007, called The Terrorists of Iraq. Uh, There's a new updated version that was written in 2014, which has three more chapters on ISIS. But it was a compendium of every insurgent group fighting in Iraq and their history of combat operations against the United States and showing that Saddam Hussein's intelligence agencies were the largest you know, insurgent group in Iraq. I lost six friends. All six contributors to that book were killed in either suicide bombings or executed, uh, one of them who was kidnapped by ISIS, uh, sorry, al-Qaeda in Iraq, and was executed in Fallujah. So you know, I take the subject very, very seriously. But the difference is, I mean, you have great books out there, you know, you have people writing books, you have J.M. Berger and Jessica Stern, you know, uh, you have Hassan Hassan and Michael Weiss, who wrote the two most popular books on ISIS. Uh, but, you know, three months before those books came out, there was this little intelligence community textbook called The Terrorists of Iraq, you know, the history of the Iraq insurgency 2003 to 2014, which had the entire breakout of this organization. Um, you know, it's not a mass market world in the intelligence community. We, we know things because we have to deal with them uh, on a day-to-day basis. Um, so to me, when I hear the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, I go, oh, you mean al-Qaeda, which changed its name initially in 2006, and then that name didn't take. And then they went to the Islamic Emirate of Iraq. And then they changed to the Mujahideen Shura Council. And then they maintained al-Qaeda in Iraq. And then when their leadership was killed and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi took over, he goes, no, 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 we're going back to Islamic State of Iraq because we're going to establish that caliphate thing. And then 2011, they deploy a unit to Syria, and they say, and now we are the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, ISIL, or Syria, as we like to say for short. You know, that was 2011, and I was in Iraq in 2011. I was in Iraq in 20, you know, virtually every other year between 2003, and I spent two whole years there myself. So when you're in the field, you already know who the threat is. And you can see them metastasize. You could see the changes in leadership that were going on between Al Qaeda and Iraq. Bin Laden always wanted Al Qaeda in Iraq led by the local insurgents, you know, but the local insurgency at that point if you were to watch the news media was al qaeda in iraq they were fighting us everywhere in iraq 550 attacks per day but it was virtually impossible they had no less than they had no more than 5000 men at their peak combat strength during the insurgency but we completely ignored the 80000 men of Saddam's intelligence, re- opera, you know, regime, and all of the Baath Party members, all of whom were just literally kicked out of power after 45 years of dominating every aspect of Iraqi life, you know, and they took a different name, Jaysh al Mujahideen, right? And they had their uh, you know National Command of the Islamic Resistance operating out of Syria, wearing Baath Party Iraqi Army general uniforms, you know, led by Isat Ibrahim al-Duri. That's our problem, is that we don't focus on the threat constantly. So the news media will lead you to believe that something that we in the intelligence community see mm-hmm. as a day to day activity is popping up as something fresh and new.
0: Right. Well, I mean, we've had terrorism experts on in the past, and many of them are coming from the 30,000 foot perspective, like mm-hmm. the big picture. Sitting, but you know, they're all experts in their own right, but they're coming from the Washington, D.C., Langley perspective. Mm-hmm. You, you have a, a bit of a unique insight. Because you you kind of have the ground, you know. You and I were in, you know, we're knuckle draggers to yeah. a degree. You know, we were there kind of in the dirt. So I, I want to ask you about from this perspective. There is this back and forth, and you see it a lot during the presidential debates about uh, people like the president uh, who argue we need to separate Islam from Islamic terrorism or from terrorism, and those and, and mainly on the right, but not everyone who think that the president is being incredibly naive. Like, how can you fight it if you don't name it or whatever yeah. that argument yeah. is. So. Where do you step into this argument and really one of the big juxtapositions of your book is arguing ISIS in Islam and whether or not we can rightly call them an Islamic group. Right. You could talk for three hours about this, but yeah. in the truncated, shortened version, what are we what do we look? Well, at? Well there's three you know there's three wings
1: of discussion out there. Uh, the first one started with uh, really Graham Wood's book, Professor Graham Woods. Uh, article that he wrote for the Atlantic about a year ago called um, uh, what ISIS really wants. And he took a, a look at it. Now, he's a political scientist. I'm an intelligence practitioner. So I have a completely different worldview, even though I'm an academic also, you know, but my basis is grounded on the fact that, you know, I drove around a BMW 735, you know, or leather jackets and, you know, bullets go whizzing by your head or suicide bombs affect you, you know. A political scientist doesn't see it from that perspective, and they don't have to deal with it day to day, and they don't have to take losses. Uh, so they can look at it and say, well, ISIS reads the Quran, and ISIS uh, uses Islamic terminology, and ISIS has Imams, and ISIS believes that they are the immediate companions of the Prophet Muhammad. Therefore, they are an extraordinarily Islamic group, and they are an Islamic terrorist group, and you must refer to them as radical Islamists. But, and then you have, on the other hand, you have the President, and you have most Muslim leaders who say ISIS does not espouse the basic tenets of Islam. They don't live up to the 1,400-year traditions of Islam. They do activities where Muslims are their number one victim base. Uh, they, they practice the, the act of takfir, of defer, declaring Muslims non-Muslims. They are un-Islamic, and their behavior is un-Islamic. And then you have the third party, which is the Pentagon, right? They are a target set. Give us a ten-digit grid. I'll put a JDAM or a Hellfire missile down that, and I'll resolve that. They are just targets. I don't need to know who they are. Just where where they are. Just just show me where they are. What I espoused, actually, in my in the first book where I discussed uh, this ideology, was a book called An End to Al Qaeda, and it was three hundred-page breakout of Al Qaeda's ideology, which Bin Laden himself called the victorious denomination ideology which was this exact belief that ISIS is executing on a massive scale. But al-Qaeda wanted to do it in a small, controlled nation, you know, controlled burn in each one of the nations that they would have, create a professional jihadi corps. They would all operate as covert operatives, and they would destabilize the government and do that. ISIS, and so they're sort of like, you know, the CIA of terrorists. ISIS, on the other hand, is a flash mob that has been called together with a text message, Right. And they all get their guns. They come to one place and come here and we'll create a caliphate. Right. That bin Laden wanted. But he actually saw in 2011 that it was spinning out of control. He didn't want just anybody coming into the well, He group. looked
0: at like 100 years to create the caliphate. Yes, yeah. that's
1: right. His 100 year plan. He thought it was like uh, like like Dick Cheney so famously said, a multi-generational plan. Well, that didn't come from Dick Cheney. That came from ISIS ideology that came from their own writings. Uh, back when we were getting pamphlets and, and, and notebooks of, of, you know, uh, little he- locally printed books out of Peshawar, Pakistan, uh, where I got my ISIS hero of jihad T-shirt uh, in the souk next to stacks of these pamphlets and books about the coming caliphate and, the, you know, living the life of Salaf like the media companions of the Prophet Muhammad, you know, that was the only way that they could pass information in, in the early 1990s. And then they would pass things covertly in Casio watches or in the audio cassettes became the next meme, you know, where they passed it on. And then came digital, you know, DVDs. Well, now they don't have that. So what you see is ISIS is executing the same ideological speciation, but they're doing it with just the faster means of communication with Twitter and Facebook. But what they're doing is they have opened the caliphate completely up to anyone. So bin Laden's jihad or written large, where where any individual can come. And it was successful, you know, very early on, in 2014, when they said the caliphate is established, you know, a new one has been established since the first time since 1924. Come here, live in paradise on earth.
0: And I've I've asked people in the past about, you know, the the ultimate ISIS ideology is one that's pretty, pretty frightening. The idea is they truly believe, I mean, Every religion has its kind of end times philosophy, and when, you know whether it's the second coming, Christianity, or the you know the first coming and Judaism. Uh, ISIS actually believes that the apocalypse is happening today.
1: ISIS, to tell you the truth, it, it, it's it's more sinister than that. ISIS is invoking the the, the apocalypse. That's written in their Book of Tribulations, which is essentially just a rewrite of the Book of Revelations in Christianity. You know, the camel trail that the Prophet Muhammad worked on with his first wife, uh, he went to Jerusalem, up and down the Hejaz, the western Saudi Arabia. Christianity was already entrenched in Judaism, in families, in Mecca. He had heard about all of these stories. But this group has taken the words of the Prophet Muhammad and the stories and the Hadiths in the Quran, and they've decided they will not just execute them. They will invoke them to happen. They will force the hand of God. They don't view themselves as just doing God's will. They see themselves as the ideological executioner of God's writing. And since the Quran itself is a holy, pure you know interpret not interpretation a pure dictation of the words of god it itself opening the cover as a form of worship they view executing the words that are in there even though they're really written about a series of battles written between a tribal you know tribal groups for the economic control and you know control of the the routes between mecca and medina and getting rid of polytheism 1400 years ago yeah, yeah. 1 th- in 622 <laughs> yeah. These men believe that they must transport themselves back mentally to the time of six twenty-two and make the world live in that
0: exact time using modern tools. Yeah, so why don't why don't they just use weapons seventh century era? Yeah, right. Might, I, mean, I, think, <laughs> I think that would be fair. But you know, I, yeah, no,
1: I I, I I said in my my counter ideology proposal perhaps we should start shaming them that, you know, you, no, you have to go back to clubs and you have to go back to using short spears or bow and arrow. But Seems fair to me. They do this, you know, we call it, a, they, they do this metaphysical dance uh, between modern-day Islam or their variant of modern-day Islam and what, what, what was occurring at the time of the Prophet Muhammad. And it would be akin to a Christian group in the United States saying, okay, everyone, we are all going to dress Act, grow our beards, and only behave in the way of the 12 apostles. But we're going to take automatic weapons and we're going to kill everyone that doesn't act the way that we act. Because we're the the pinnacle of our religion. This is where ISIS leaves Islam. They're pretty close. But all of these beliefs, Salafism, uh, which is the living your life like the Prophet Muhammad, they exist in, in traditional Islam.
0: Well, Takfir doesn't as much, but, though, right? The idea right. of being able to excommunicate people right. from even Islam. Yeah, the Prophet
1: Muhammad himself said, which one of you Muslims has the right to determine something that only God can do? And that's why you'll hear traditional Muslims will, will never say ISIS members are no longer Muslims, right? They We're not going to practice Takfir. They're practicing Takfir, the, the right to determine that someone is not a Muslim. So ISIS has no qualms with that. And this is what, why? They are what I call the fourth option. Are they Muslim? Yes. Do they represent Islam? Are they Islamic? No. Are they an awesome target set for dams and Hellfire <laughs> missiles? Oh, yes. Okay, so you have all three branches can be rolled into one, but how do you easily consume that? What's a better way of understanding it? And what's interesting is a lot of academics will tiptoe up to this point and then run back. ISIS is an Islamic cult. And so instead of saying, oh, this is radical Islam, this isn't radical Islam. Radical Islam's is Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. Radical Islam is extremism, is Hamas. ISIS is an order of magnitude beyond radical Islam. You could only wish they would go
0: back to radical Islam. They are Islamic cultists. Right, you've, you've compared them to the Branch Davidians, yes. and to the Hellbot crew. Yeah, yeah, and
1: Om Shinrikyo yeah. in yeah. Japan, you know. Uh, and with the reach and capacity of Om Shinrikyo, Om Shinrikyo had a farm in northwestern Australia in order to test sarin nerve gas. And they were gassing thousands of sheep there and then went to Tokyo and did the same thing, you know, with a, a technological mistake. ISIS is looking to build that capacity. But like Om Shinrikyo, they have to bring
0: you in with the ideology. They have to control your behaviors. So your book does something that others don't other than just you don't just explain who isis is you do you you know this is a very large book uh i'm actually very happy to see (laughs) the encyclopedia of isis is what people are calling it that was that was my nice way of saying this is a large tome but i was very happy to see in the end notes there's over 1100 different end notes which is extraordinary for someone like me who who likes seeing actual research done It's nice to see um, I'm giving you props. I, I um, have actually been
1: insulted by reviewers for having so many notes. Well, that's ridiculous. Um, who they, you know? So that's silly. No, we're in the intelligence community. You gotta, you gotta show
0: your work, right? And well, in this case too, because there's so much out there. Some of it good, some of it crap. You want to make sure that you actually can back yourself up right. with information. Now, your subtitle is who they are, how they fight, what they believe. But something that you include in this book is your kind of your personal step-by-step plan to beat ISIS. Yeah. W- without giving away the ending, kind of just lay out a little bit about what, what you're, you're looking at your plans. It's, it's an interesting way of thinking about things. And, and I want to ask you specifically about this because it almost looks like someone's listening. But go ahead.
1: Well, yeah, it, it does sort of look like someone's listening. Um, uh, first, I'll tell you a couple of funny stories that, that, that will help you understand why. Um, I, and I said this in our, in our briefing today. And between 2006 and 2008, I, I lectured at Macquarie University in Sydney, uh, the um, Center for Policing, Intelligence, and Counterterrorism. And when I was in Australia for years, I was hammering in the media, ISIS is an Islamic cult. And if you recognize and understand their, what's going on as cultism, which is a corruption of a mainstream religion for personal or political purposes – it's so much easier to digest why they're doing this. Why do they want to destroy Islam and re-engineer it? Because that's their goal. Mm-hmm. They, they absolutely, I mean, attacking us is just fun for them. Their real goal is to change Islam so that Islam will be co-opted and then will be the spearhead to changing the world for their savior, the Mahdi, and the return of the prophet Jesus. All right? So this is technically jihad for Jesus. Uh literally. This should have been the title. Not technically. Yeah. And if you want a much deeper, deeper dive than than what I give in the book, because my book is an in is technically an in, is essentially a CIA version contract encyclopedia of everything there is to know about them, how they do it, why they do it, when they do it, in context. Um you know, you can go to uh you know um Will McCant's book, Isis Apocalypse, which goes deeper into the religious uh, precepts. But I show how those the religious belief system molds itself into strategic battle, mm-hmm. how their combat tactics in the street literally are drawn from uh, not only what they've learned from al-Qaeda in Iraq or al-Qaeda's strategic between al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula and all of the old-school Generation 1 through 4 combatants, but also how they look to the 6th century. Mm-hmm to fight, why they dig trenches, why they, you know, literally, you know, we've had a couple of instances where guys tied themselves together, you know, fighting as if in a Quranic spirit. And they view themselves as these Islamic knights. So the question that constantly came up, um, uh, because I'm I'm an NBC contributor for NBC News, was, well, how do you defeat this? You showed us the ideology, you showed us the manpower, you showed us their combat tactics, you know, you showed us that they can't serve as Humvees, so they turned them into a thousand, you know, suicide, what we call bomb Vs, right? Uh, they actually have a suicide bomber command, by the way, uh, an actual structure with a logo. And how do you beat them? Well, you know, I've always been a, a core proponent of going at this group ideologically, going after their belief system. Um, if So long as this virus has this attraction to a small microcosmic section of people, even if it's only several thousand people. Their capacity for doing mayhem and destabilizing the Middle East and the world only takes a couple of people. Look, this group is based on the first Islamic cult, the Khawarij. Uh, And if you want to see a name that they hate, it's the Khawarij. The Prophet Muhammad himself warned against this group. That these guys would pray like Muslims five times a day, and then at their first opportunity, they would leave Islam like an arrow from the bow. They hate being called Khawarij. So all of you start calling them Khawarij, not Daesh, okay? Now, this group believes that they are executing a prophetic method, as they call it, that they're executing a strategic plan, not just to make the world Islamic, but to convert the entire Islamic world to their worldview or they will die. It's as simple as that. How do you beat that? Well, first you go after their belief system. What they are is a combination of all three of those factors, right? right? They're Islamic, they're un-Islamic, their target set. And that comes into cultist. There's one word you won't ever hear said in the Muslim world is the word Abadi, which is Arabic for cult. They'll use sect, which is a qm. Right? In Arabic, they'll use Qusm, which is sect. They'll use Anharfi, which is deviant or deviation. But because of this natural belief that you can bring, if someone says he's a Muslim and he proves himself as a Muslim, you can bring him back to Islam should he deviate from Islam. That's what the Saudis like to think. ISIS has no qualms about calling you an apostate and executing you on the spot. Right. The Muslim world won't do that. So nothing says that we cannot assist the Muslim world. In calling out the deviation in their ideology to the point where you have to incite a war for the soul of the Muslim in the street who is going to make contact with him. If you were to make it to clearly explain with the proper megaphone that ISIS's belief system endangers your soul, having contact with them is like having contact with the Iblis, right? The demons. Of the Quran, which every Muslim believes, or the evil genies, right? Every Muslim believes in genies, okay? They're real. Trust me, I almost, almost got killed in Iraq going on a genie hunt for my Muslim, uh, bot, my Muslim guards who really believed that they were seeing a genie. Uh, most dangerous thing I did in my career go out in Iraq at 2 a.m. to look at a genie. So, Muslims ha- are, are true to their faith. They are also true to the traditions of Islam. Islam has been an incrementally changing religion over time. So, but ISIS has not. This Al-Qaedaism, this ISIS belief system that they've taken from Al-Qaeda is radical. It's revolutionary and it's anarchy. Right? You are with us or you are dead. You are our version of Islam or you are dead. The Muslim world needs to be given the opportunity or given the megaphone to show that contact with these people is an endangerment to your soul. ISIS understands that they hate having their Islam questioned, hate it with a white hot passion. The Saudis love to touch that. And then they'll step back because they don't want to, you know, they won't don't want to isolate anyone within their 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 country or their religion. Right. So someone has to do this. Um, I spoke recently on War News Radio, and they asked me, well, how would you do that? Well, you know, we drop leaflets in Iraq and Syria right now, ridiculous psychological operations leaflets, you know, the guy being thrown into the meat grinder. ISIS collects those. They take pictures of those on Twitter with them laughing. That doesn't affect them. It doesn't affect their soul. It doesn't affect their life. What would affect them is a leaflet drafted up, by the highest religious authority in so both Saudi Arabia and Egypt, right? The Ulima, where you say simple statements that everyone can understand. If you are the Khawarij, which is the outsiders, that first group, you are going to hell. Mm. And on the opposite side, you have the quote from the Quran, which specifies what people who commit evil and murder do and what their fate is. And they'll laugh for about a tenth of a second. And they'll go, okay, that's not true. We are the true followers. But the people who have to sell them water, Red Bull, bring them sodas, right, and interact with them, will start having what Morton Storm, right? Right. The the guy, the Danish convert to Islam called, uh, right, a moment of doubt, supreme doubt, where he suddenly realized... What I'm doing with these people with Al-Qaeda, what I'm doing with this ideology is clearly not Islam. Right. When you create a storm of doubt in their soul, you are, they are going to lose support of the community. And it was Dr. Ayman al zawahri himself, the new commander of Al-Qaeda, who said, should we lose the support of the Muslim world in any capacity, especially in the belief of our Islam, We will be crushed in the shadows. Now, anyone who studied terrorism understands that insurgency requires popular support. All insurgent groups die when they lose the population. Look at Colombia now, right? They have virtually no support whatsoever, right? The war is over. ISIS, same thing. Al-Qaeda, same thing. You have to show to the Muslim world, through the Muslim world, that what you're dealing with, that's not Islam. It's a variant. It's a sect. Go ahead and call it what it is. A body, right? You want to call it cultism. And when that's a word, they can rally around. Right. Okay, because if you can clearly explain, you know, Islamically with the full jurisprudence of the ulima, of the Muslim is of the Islamic uh, religious bodies in the world, then you have a basis of telling everyone around them that you should not be in contact with these people. You are not at risk here. Only God can judge you. But what you're doing is you're, you know, dirtying, blackening, as they like to say, blackening your soul, and that will be judged.
0: Another way potentially to ruin their support is what we did a couple of days ago, and it sounds like we blew the living bejesus out of all their money. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay. yeah. which, which, you know, in the military very technical jargon is hitting them in the soft squishy parts. Right, right. Yeah, you know, in the rear, the logistics, the, you know, instead of taking them head on, which has been very difficult to do. Sure. Go after their infrastructure, go after their communications, their right. logistics Their, uh, their intel guys versus their frontline fighters. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm uh, a big fan of killing intelligence staff. What do you, what do you think about It sounds like that may be a new strategy because we had SF guys on the ground doing that.
1: Well, it is. It is part of a new strategy. But as I I write in my book, I create an operational strategy I call dark matter. And as you know, dark matter is not the things that you see in the universe. It's all the spaces in between. Um, ISIS has created a constellation of cities and towns that they have under their operational control. The reason that they have operational control is that they have lines of communication between each of these cities and towns. Those are roads, highways, bridges. They have economic movement. They have, finan- you know, they have financial movement. They have weapons, equipment, and manpower movement, right? And the way to disrupt that narrative of ISIS as being this this oval of a nation-state that has been carved out of western Iraq and eastern Syria is to start breaking those lines of communications. And I hearken back to you know, the, the old school, the, the OSS, Jedberg teams yeah. – uh, you know, the SOEs, infiltration of agents, uh, to go with the French Maquis, uh, and the Vietnam Mike forces, where you get indigenous forces, you marry up a special forces unit to them, and you don't go six at a time. You don't go 12 at a time, right? You go 100 at a time. Like the Montagnards. Yeah, the airport. Montagnards, yeah. right? And you drop them. You know, the best thing we could do is instead of doing a, you know, one-hour, two-hour raid, you take C C-17, you take them all in the parachute, you go to 5,000 feet AGL, and you start kicking out 100 men into the middle of the desert. You take a section of their line of communications, let's say between Derezawa and Raqqa, right? You create a kill box for your drones and your JDAM, you know, B-1s, right? And then you take over that section of highway and you break the link between ISIS cities. And when you do that, you don't do it in just one place. You do it in 12 places all on the same night for 48 to 72 hours. And then when they are forced to come out to confront you, you use your own asymmetric warfare. You use B-1 bombers carrying, you know, 64 JDMs. You have B-52s. And you just, you know, using your JTACs and your 100-man insurgent force kill everything that comes out to you. Just line up the A-10s yeah. and just have them fly. Oh, yeah, around. of course. And the funny thing is... We're really good at this. (laughs) This is, you know, as somebody, I I, I recently briefed this, and somebody goes, that's ranger stuff you're talking about there. And I said, if you read the book, I propose the rangers be brought out. But the soft guys can go up and they can set up long, you know, long-range reconnaissance uh, and, you know, create, if you want, carve out air bases in the Syrian desert, right? Everybody goes, oh, Desert One again. No, we're really good at this now. Right. We can land a C-17 in the middle of nowhere and drop off, you know, piranha, you know, in in, in up armored labs Mm -hmm. and uh, go out and do a week long heavy, you know, special operations mission where we can take bases, take cities, you know, take small towns, kill everyone and leave. Get on that same C-17 and fly out. Now, that sounds now with the Russians in play, it's a lot more daring. The thing is, we have indigenous forces who will go with us. You know, I propose taking the Syrian Kurds who are in Syria and doing missions in western Iraq and taking northern Iraqi Kurds and flying them to Raqqa, Syria. Because imagine the shock value when they say, wait a minute, these guys were attacking. These are Iraqi Kurds. What are they doing in Raqqa? You know, ISIS's capital in Syria. Well, you're the ones who created this border right? You created that oval of a new nation state. We're just going to bring disparate forces in wherever we want. And that itself will have a shock effect on the forces that they're fighting. They won't know who they're engaging. Maybe it'll be the Jordanians with us the next day. Maybe it'll be, you know, the UAE SOF. You know, the point is, instead of going out and doing these one and two time pinpoint raids, we need to start destroying their links to their terrain. Now, imagine the news story the next morning. 1,200 men are all over ISIS's rear area, destroying everything, causing them to have to come out of their cities, and we're, we're destroying Toyota task forces every day. And then 48 hours, all of them disappear. It would change the narrative. It would change now. the entire narrative of the war.
0: Okay. So, so, lots of, yeah, <laughs> you, so that's why you grab this book. You can read all, all about that here. Uh, I, I want to finish up by asking. All the attention usually ends up in the Middle East. Uh but you spent time a lot of other places because there, there's problems a lot of other places. There's you know, Boko Haram and al-Shabaab mm. and even I mean, the most populous Muslim nation in the world is not Indonesia, in East, it's yeah. Indonesia right? right? And, and so it's just there. There, there are places outside of ISIS-held territory that could potentially be flashpoints yeah. in the future. Can you talk a little bit about what's being done uh, to minimize the potential damage from there?
1: Well, Boko Haram has sworn the uh, oath of loyalty to ISIS, and there's an entire chapter. As, if you read the book, there is literally every place ISIS is has been broken down into an analytical and historical reading of every one of their willyots with their, their provinces. And Boko Haram is the willyot of West Africa, right, the state of West Africa. And that is an insane group of people, um, they were pressured very badly last year. Actually, I made a, a prediction last year that they would be gone by Ramadan of last year. But they're very elastic. And um, they, they are, as a matter of fact, they viewed themselves as the West African Taliban. And they have that capacity to go up into the mountains and in the, in the caves where, where they are right now. But in Indonesia, on the other hand, you just had this recent attack that occurred in Jakarta, in a place that I had been, been to. Everybody knows the Starbucks, right? Uh, Uh, up there near uh, the United Nations headquarters. Um, And I actually saw the video of those attacks. As, As a matter of fact, I was just in Singapore last week, and there's this big documentary that was done about the Jakarta attacks where many people had recorded them. And as soon as you see how they fought, right, guys with handguns, this is interesting, right, handguns, assault rifle, suicide vest, improvised like coconut-style hand grenades and knives. It was the knife that, that gives you the indicator that you're an ISIS member, right? They love going to blades. Um, and they carried out this attack. As a matter of fact, one guy, there's a very clear video of one guy blowing up and his grenades going off. Uh, and they, but they always go along ISIS uh, doctrine. The first place they attacked was not the United Nations headquarters or the Starbucks. Those would always be secondary. Doctrine is you attack the apostate's military and police forces. So the first thing they did was they attacked a police post, guard post. You know, these guards are armed. (laughs) So immediately the first three guys were mowed down. They managed to kill a couple of police officers, but it broke the back of the assault to the point where two of them had survived and actually were on camera standing off in a crowd, watching, evaluating the, the ability of them to be successful in the rest of the raid. And then they carried out more shootings till the police, you know, glenned them down or one of them blew up. But we're seeing these tactics pop up everywhere now. In Israel, there's a tactic that's happening that's very unique. And it doesn't appear to be inspired by Hamas or Fatah. It's what we call suicide individual weapons attack. We have Israeli Arabs... Just general Palestinians, Israeli Arabs, people who have grown up in the Arab towns of Israel near Haifa, near Tel Aviv, who are not in the West Bank, right? People who have Israeli passports are grabbing knives, kitchen knives, going out onto the streets, attacking a Jew and stabbing them until someone comes and kills them. We'd never seen this tactic before. We'd seen other improvised tactics by Hamas, guys driving bulldozers, guys driving their cars and running over people in there. But this tactic, you know, by the time we got to the fourth or fifth one that was occurring in Jerusalem to where they would sh- come up, they would stab someone to death, and they pretty much wait, and- wait to be killed. This showed that this was being inspired by something completely different. Right. It's not just
0: a random suicide by God. No, no, no.
1: This is them using an improvised weapon, whatever was at their hand, a a kitchen knife, and they wanted to die. And this mm -hmm. is probably the first signs of ISIS in Israel, ISIS in the Levant, right? Mm -hmm. Israel
0: and Palestine is part of the Levant. Truly frightening. So Malcolm Nance, author of the new book, Defeating ISIS, who they are, how they fight, Mm -hmm. what they believe. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us again. Here at SpyCast. Well, it's always great to uh, talk to practitioners uh, and get the word out there. So Thank you. thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at I-N-T-L Spycast. That's I-N-T-L Spycast. Talk to you next week.